Hello, everybody. I am Deacon Amos, and this is the Missionary District Podcast. And I'm here today with my friend Jordan Duncan. Hello. Recently, Tyler Wall and I uh, started recording podcasts on the topic of secularism. And when we did that, we kind of thought that that would be one direction that we would take this podcast. Uh, and then the other direction that we were thinking about is what Jordan and I want to start today, uh, which is just answering questions that people might have, whether they be uh, theological or uh, practical, missional, uh, anything like that, anything that's semi-related to the Christian faith, uh, we want to talk about it. And uh, yeah, so Jordan, yeah, where are you from and uh, why are you interested in doing this sort of thing? Oh, good question. I am also from Lethbridge, or do you mean like originally? Sure, originally. I oh. don't know. What's your history? Give Ooh. me, let, let the listeners get to know you a little okay. bit. Okay, well, I was born in Revelstoke, B.C., and grew up mostly in Saskatchewan, in North Battleford. And then uh, after college, went to college in Eston, Saskatchewan, and then went to Calgary for a couple of years, and then came here to Lethbridge. Wow. Mm -hmm. And you recently got uh, a Master's of Divinity, did you not? I did, yeah. Great. I got that in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh? Yeah, I was there briefly before COVID kicked me out of the country. <laughs> And uh, why are you interested in doing this sort of thing? Or are you? Maybe I just roped you into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just told me to come into this room, and then you put a mic in front of my face. Um, I know I am interested in doing uh, this kind of thing because I hear these questions a lot, especially as someone who's gone to school for these things. People will go, why are you guys doing that? And um, I have found the answers interesting as I've looked into why do we do church the way we do it? Not just interesting, but really important and impactful for my faith. Once I find out, I guess I notice that a lot of people come to church and they see things being done or they notice the way people live their Christian lives and they have a lot of questions about it. But without good answers, I don't know. I find that, I find that good answers draw me into those things right. and make me more excited to practice my Christian faith. And it just helps me understand how I can live as a Christian better. Yeah, so I want to help do that for other people and try and make it as simple and clear as possible, I guess. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we get asked about fairly often is the church calendar. Like, what is it and why is it significant? And I think there's probably two groups of people that ask this question. Uh, first, people who are brand new to the Christian faith, uh, who are just curious, who see all this stuff happening, and uh, they don't know why, you know, the colors change from season to season and things like that. And so they're just curious. They want to know what's happening. And secondly, uh, there's people who have been Christians for a long time and who are maybe joining Anglicanism from other traditions that uh, haven't necessarily followed the church calendar before beyond maybe special services at Christmas and Easter and things like that. And so people in this group are maybe uh, probably curious, mostly curious, but sometimes they can be a little bit maybe suspicious as well, mm -hmm. uh, just because it hasn't been a part of their uh, Christian journey to that point. Yeah, I find I end up talking to a lot of people in that camp, people who have been Christians for a long time, but things about Anglicanism are new to them. And 
I, I find that in their understanding, there's a mix of misunderstandings and then just gaps of knowledge, I guess, where they just, they didn't know something. And I love trying to answer those questions because I also wasn't always Anglican and it took, it's taken a long time to learn those questions. And actually a big part of the reason why I went to seminary was specifically to kind of have all those questions answered for me. I still had a lot of questions. I actually still have a lot of questions. And Seminary didn't answer every question you have? <laughs> uh, no, surprisingly. In some cases, it just raised more questions for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I might even have some questions for you today about the church calendar. So hopefully you uh, can help me understand more than I know now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> Uh, so in, in general, when we talk about the church calendar, we're usually just talking about the different seasons that we go through in the church year. So every year has a cycle of seasons, and it begins with Advent, the season of Advent, four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, the word Advent means arrival or approach, and Advent is a season of uh, waiting for the fulfillment of promise. So it's a time of preparation for the coming of the Messiah, and so we reflect upon uh, the promises of the Old Testament scriptures and also on the story of John the Baptist, who was there to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, and also we reflect upon his second coming and what sort of preparation needs to take place in us as we anticipate his coming again, his second advent. Uh, for me, advent, I was when I was reading through your kind of notes here, thinking about it, it for the first time I realized advent is... Well, I've always known that Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. Well, as long as I've known about the church calendar, I've known that. <laughs> um, but in your description, I realize there's a looking backward and a looking forward. Hmm. Looking backward, using the promises of the Old Testament to think about Jesus's first coming. And so we look backwards to that. But then we're also looking forward to Jesus's second coming. And um, it dawned on me that the like the calendar year, which starts with January. January was named after the, I think, Roman god of Janus, maybe? I have no idea. I don't idea. know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's something like that. But he was like a two-headed god that looked backward and looked forward. And so the first month of the year was named that because huh. it's like a looking backward and looking forward. Well, and some of our like New Year's Eve practices kind of reflect that. But it just... it. Yeah, I realized Advent is like that, but a lot deeper right. <laughs> in, in all these ways, looking backward to the Old Testament and to the first coming of Jesus, and then also using that to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Advent, obviously, is followed by Christmas. Uh, we're preparing for Christmas, and so Advent is followed by Christmas, which lasts for a full 12 days. And uh, this is, of course, a celebration of the incarnation of Jesus. And uh, one thing I've noticed is that it can be a little bit difficult in our culture to actually wait until Christmas to celebrate Christmas. I think uh, it seems like everybody around us has started celebrating Christmas right at about the time Halloween ends. Yeah. And uh, by the time Christmas gets here, they are done. Like you see trees out on the front lawn by two o'clock on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate that that we give ourselves a full 12 days of celebration. Yeah, I'm wondering, Amos, you've mentioned um, 
already that like Advent, we use that time to reflect uh, on Old Testament promises and Christmas we celebrate for 12 days. I guess what are some of the things that you do during Advent to use that time to reflect? And then what are the th- some of the things you do during the 12 days of Christmas that you do to celebrate? Like actually, how do we, how do we embody that and practice these things? That's a good question, Jordan. I feel like I'm still learning on the practical side of things yeah. uh, what to do. One of the things that we do as a family is we change uh, our decorations between Advent and Christmas. And so uh, that that helps at least mark the difference between the seasons. Oh, that's cool. So we have, you know, say purple lights up during the season of Advent, and then we switch them all to white or gold and silver or whatever right. uh, during the season of Christmas. And uh, at, at least visually, there, there's a marked difference between the seasons. I think in Advent... Uh, it's good to spend uh, time in prayer, uh, extra time in prayer, perhaps even in fasting uh, and and in, in giving, in almsgiving, uh, things like that. Things that also mark the season of Lent, really. Um, but then also, uh, as you're saying, reflection on, you know, where you've come from and where you're going and, and what we're preparing for. Hmm. Uh, reflecting on the truths of the incarnation and, uh, of course, reflecting on his ultimate coming again in glory. Uh, I think it's, it's good to just spend time sitting in those things and sitting in the scriptures that speak of those things. What about for you? Yeah, I think, I think you've kind of nailed it there. I, I guess just finding some new practice or rhythm, making an intentional effort during that season, like for Advent to practice almost the mood of the season. Like Mm. you said, it's about waiting because Advent means arrival. And so we're waiting for Jesus's arrival. And so this year, something I tried that I actually really liked was because I didn't really know what else to do. And I thought, well, how can I wait? And that, that month of December is so busy with Christmas parties, which is ironic. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because it's not Christmas yet, but yeah, I tried, I, I made myself one day, one night of the week, every week, to just have nothing on and not not go anywhere, just come home from work and not really do anything. Right. Like I would pray and read my Bible a little bit, but then I wouldn't do, I would just kind of sit around and, I don't know, do not much of anything. Like just kind of wait, get in that mood. But yeah, I think what you said about praying in those, in that direction of, if this is what Advent's about, how do I, how do I pray about those things? Right. And what scriptures can I read? So yeah, I just try and find intentional ways of praying in that way, reading scriptures about that, um, during that season. The 12 days of Christmas I find is the hardest (laughs) because you're traveling and Christmas happens on one day and maybe you'll have like a couple extra family things. Right. Um, but trying to celebrate 12 days in a row yeah. while everyone's going back to work. And yeah. <laughs> it's, it feels awkward in our culture, I think. I yeah. figured it out. Yeah, I think we do need to be uh, intentional about changing that maybe and making sure we spend time uh, with our good friends and with our family hmm. and, and really celebrating mm-hmm. um, all through the whole, the whole 12 days, uh, not just on you know Christmas Day, Boxing Day, but yeah. to really be intentional about being joyous and festive. Yeah. 
So what's after Christmas then? Or how does Christmas, the 12 days, kind of come to an end? Yeah, it comes to an end with uh, the Feast of Epiphany. And uh, um, that starts a stretch of what we can call ordinary time, uh, which doesn't mean that it is bland and easily forgettable or anything like that, (laughs) uh, but that it is ordered. We count the number of weeks. And uh, sometimes it's actually called the season of the Epiphany because, uh, as I said, it begins with the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, which is there to celebrate the expansion of the gospel to the world. This is uh, the manifestation, the revealing, the epiphany of Jesus Christ. The story uh, of the Magi then is, is featured very highly at the Feast of the Epiphany. We're, we're celebrating that the light of the world has come, that Jesus is here. What I like about that is the story of the Magi never made sense to me before in the Christmas story, because um, I always heard it around Christmas time or as a part of the Christmas narrative, but I never understood why it's even in the story. But yeah, I guess that what you just said, as it's a celebration of the light to the world, mm-hmm. of, of the light of Jesus to the world. And, and to the whole world. Right. Yeah. Not just to his people, but to the Gentiles also. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a cool feast. Yeah. So I, I like that. I mean, at this church, we call it um, the season of Epiphany after that. And uh, I like that we do that because it's good to to give some more time to those truths as well and to mm-hmm. concentrate in that short season on um, the expansion of the gospel to, to the whole world. How does the season of Epiphany end? What's the last Sunday? The last Sunday in Epiphany is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Nice. Yeah. Which is also a really cool story that I didn't really figure out, but I like that it features in our church calendar every year. Mm-hmm. Like it, every year it gets preached on. And actually last year I ended up having to preach that Sunday and it was, <laughs> I didn't know it was the Feast of Transfiguration. I just picked the date when it, a couple of dates were offered to me. And then I studied the passage and I was like, what is this about? <laughs> How do you preach this? It, it felt like I was unpacking something new and I've been a Christian for 32 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was great. I like that Sunday. Yeah. I love it too. The the transfiguration is such a mysterious event. Yeah. It's it's good just to reflect on it and go like I mean even though we reflect on it every year, mm-hmm. every every time I'm still like I have no idea what's happening here. This is so <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> every time something something clicks with me, but I still have so many more questions. Um so transfiguration brings uh the season of epiphany to an end. Uh and then what happens? Where does it go from there? Well, then we enter into the season of Lent, and Lent begins with Ash Wednesday and a reminder of our mortality and a call to fasting and to service and to almsgiving. And Lent is 40 days long, which is patterned after the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness uh, and also the 40 days that Jesus spent being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And uh, sometimes people notice that Lent is actually a little bit more than 40 days long. And the reason for that is that we don't count Sundays as days of fasting because every Sunday is a feast day. Even in fasting seasons, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection and a cause for rejoicing. For me, that was groundbreaking to find that out. Um, First of all, because the first couple of times I tried fasting something during Lent, I didn't realize that the Sundays weren't a part of the fast. Right. So I was fasting something for 47 days and 
just to have that one day break in the week where <laughs> I could have coffee again or whatever it was, yeah. um, was, I mean, it felt like cheating the first time, but it actually has started to teach me a lot about fasting. Right. The actual times where you break fasts teaches you about the fasting side of things. And it's helped me realize, I guess the whole, the whole church calendar, the periods of fasting and the periods of feasting, the one always informs the other. So now that I've learned how to fast, it really changes how I feel when I'm feasting. Even if it's just like someone invites me over to dinner and they cook like a huge meal, you start to appreciate food and in times of celebration a lot more Yeah. when sometime in your month or week you've spent a little bit of time fasting. Yeah. And so even during Lent, I like that there's, it's not just a straight 40 days of not doing something. Right. There's is modulation, the right word. Like I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. fast and then Sundays you celebrate and you feast. Um, and that feast means so much more. And Sunday means the Sunday just has more of a depth to it. Cause something in your life is actually different on that day. And then right. the fasting, cause when I did the fasting before, and it was just a block of 40 or 47 days, at some point in there, I stopped remembering that I was fasting. I just got used to not drinking coffee right. or whatever I was doing and totally forgot I was fasting anymore. And so the last couple of weeks of Lent, it didn't feel like a fast. Right. It just felt like a new way of doing life. But the continual back and forth really helped me feel the time I'm in right. while I'm in it. Which Just I think focused. Is, yeah. And I think it's part of, I've noticed it. it just always grabs my attention towards Jesus. It reminds me that what I'm doing, how I'm living is actually for Jesus and not just in fasting, but then that reminds me everything I'm doing should be for Jesus. That's awesome. So Lent then culminates in Holy Week, which is the most important week in the Christian year. In Holy Week, we live out the final days of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. So we are with him in the upper room when he washes the disciples' feet and celebrates the Last Supper and institutes the Eucharist uh, on Maundy Thursday. We confront the horrific reality of the crucifixion on Good Friday. We mourn and we wait with the disciples on Holy Saturday in this space between crucifixion and resurrection. And then we celebrate with raucous praise as the great Easter vigil reminds us that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And then after that, we uh, enter the season of Easter, starting with Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And Easter is 50 days long. And this time we do count Sundays. And this is the season where we focus on the resurrection of Jesus. He is risen. He has defeated death. He has saved us from our sin. And through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. And then 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And so the Feast of the Ascension uh, is always there. It's 40 days after Easter Sunday, which is always on a Thursday. And it kind of begins uh, a season within a season. So for the last 10 days of Easter, we celebrate the Ascension. And then after that, we have the Feast of Pentecost, which comes 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is really the hinge point between Easter and ordinary time. And it is the time where we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, where, where we read Acts 2, 
and, and we contemplate the events that took place uh, when the church was born. Uh, following that, we have Trinity Sunday, and kind of depending on your tradition, the period of ordinary time that stretches from Trinity Sunday to Christ the King Sunday, which is the very last Sunday in the liturgical year, uh, those Sundays will be counted as either Sundays after Trinity or Sundays after Pentecost. And either way, this period focuses on growth and discipleship and mission. Which one do we call it at Via Lethbridge? Sundays after Trinity or Sundays after Pentecost? Typically, we do Sundays after Trinity. That's, okay. I think, the Anglican way. Got it. Yeah. Can I try and just recap all of that? Sure. So we start with Advent. That's the start of the Christian year. And Advent's four Sundays long. It's the four Sundays before Christmas. Um, so it usually starts last weekend of November. Yeah, right at the end of November or sometimes right at the beginning of December. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So Advent's four Sundays long, and then Christmas Day begins the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas, and that always takes us to January 6th, mm -hmm. which is the Feast of the Epiphany, and then we have our first block of ordinary time, which we sometimes call Epiphany season, or season yep. of the Epiphany, and then that ends with the Feast of the Transfiguration, and then the next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And that begins the season of Lent. And then Lent is 40 days. And then the last week of Lent is called Holy Week. And it begins with Palm Sunday. And then there's, I think we just call it Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, which I think it's from the word mandatum, which is Latin. I mean, you're you're the Latin expert here. Well, I will be, hopefully, in oh, a couple okay. of years. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently mandatum means commandment in Latin, and it's on Maundy Thursday that there's the passage about Jesus and Last Supper and the foot washing and the institution of the Last Supper. And so the commandment is... Um, Love one another. Yes, yeah. So the commandment then is, so it's love one another's Thursday, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing to celebrate. And then, of course, then Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. What I was always confused about when I came into Anglicanism was that Easter Monday isn't a thing. Because in the Canadian calendar, you get a day off on Easter Monday. Right. And I was like, oh, I thought that was a church thing. And it kind of is. I right. Mean, it's, the first day of the season of Easter. Well, I guess... Res second day. Yeah, second day. And I guess it's just a stat because they can't give a stat on Sunday. Maybe. <laughs> so it's like the Easter stat on a Monday. <laughs> I anyway. think we're just all exhausted from Holy Week. We just can't keep that up. <laughs> that's probably why the Canadian government did that. Um, but anyway, and so Easter Sunday, and then the whole Easter season's 50 days. Mm-hmm. And on the 40th day of that is the Feast of the Ascension, which always ends up on a Thursday. And then 10 days after Ascension brings the 40 days to 50 days. And then we've got Pentecost, which is the word for 50, Indeed. which is why we call it that, I guess. Um, okay, so then Pentecost and that 
that starts the second block of ordinary time, Mm -hmm. which sometimes, I guess the first Sunday in that ordinary time is Trinity Sunday. Yep. And so sometimes we call it those Sundays of ordinary time, Sundays after Trinity. Sometimes it's Sundays after Pentecost. Either way, it comes to an end with Christ the King Sunday, and that's late, mid-November. Yep. And then we're back to Advent. Then we're back. Happy New Year. It's Advent yeah. again. Happy yeah. New Year. I <laughs> wonder why we don't do like a New Year's celebration. We usually make a lame joke about it on, on oh. the first Sunday, but... Apparently they you know. haven't left an impression on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that is actually just helpful for me, saying that all out loud like that. I feel like I actually have a better grasp of it for myself. I guess the question then is, why should we do this? Because the Bible doesn't demand that we do this, that's for sure. Yep. And the Bible doesn't even suggest that we celebrate Lent or <laughs> or suggest that we celebrate Easter, I don't think. Suggests that we celebrate the Lord's Supper when we gather and that we gather on Sundays. But anything after that seems extra to the Bible. So maybe I don't know if you want to answer the question, do we have to do this? But at least maybe the que- a good question to start with is, why should we? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I think there's a few reasons. I think, uh, first of all, I do think it is biblical. So it's not explicitly, you know, Lent isn't explicitly in the Bible. But wh- when we talk about that, I think, you know, I'd like to say a couple things, I guess, about the whether or not it's biblical. First, you know, the New Testament is really short. You know, the Old Testament spans a few thousand years, but the New Testament focuses in uh, really sharply on the life of Jesus and then just gives us a very brief window of what it looked like for the church to start to grapple with the revelation of Jesus Christ and the developments that took place because of that. And so if we're looking for a biblical basis for a pattern of living that is structured around the key events in salvation history, which is essentially what the church year is, then the New Testament uh, probably isn't the best place to look, actually. We should probably be looking to the Old Testament for that. And when we do that, we see that God's people actually did organize their lives around major feasts and celebrations. And the emphasis of these was on remembering and reliving their salvation, the redemption of Israel from Egypt when God led them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so it only makes sense to me that that God's people in the New Covenant would maintain that pattern of living, only now we are principally focused on remembering the Christ event. The church calendar, or, or at least the pattern that produced the church calendar, uh, is biblical. Uh, is it obligatory for Christians to follow? Uh, I don't think it is, but I think it's very beneficial, uh, and, and that the pattern of living that way is a biblical pattern. Secondly, I think I would say a good reason to do it is because it's very intentional. I think everybody has some kind of an organizing principle, and this is a really good one for us to use. If you don't have something that is external to the preacher that is guiding the church uh, through the year, then there's a real danger that you will just hear the things that the preacher is the most passionate about. And, you know, one of my favorite pastors growing up was absolutely in love with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And 
I don't know how many sermons I heard on it, but it was quite a few. And now I genuinely love this guy, and I actually never got tired of hearing him preach about the prodigal son. He, he really did bring us to greater and greater depths of understanding in it and appreciation for it and all of, all of that. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure that there were some things that he wasn't preaching about that maybe we needed to hear as well. And I think, I think every pastor intends to preach the whole gospel and to make sure that they hit the pieces that are of the utmost importance. The church calendar sort of codifies those intentions and ensures that we actually do spend time every year remembering those key events in salvation history. So you wouldn't say that the Bible says we have to do this, but you've, I think you've made a pretty good case for the Bible suggesting that this is a really good way to live. It was for the Israelites. And, and I think even in the New Testament, there's some evidence that the early Christians were kind of still living out a lot of those feasts um, from the Old Testament. Yeah. And, well, I mean, why were they gathered together in Acts chapter 2, right? right? So it, it does seem like the Bible is not saying you got to do this. And this is the way exactly to do it. But the, all the evidence is there that this is just how God's people live. Right. And somehow doing this, even if it's not, even if the Bible doesn't have like instructions of like, here's why it works necessarily, yeah. it does seem pretty clear that this is something that helps God's people live with God and become closer to God and deeper with their relationship to God. And so it's not just, it's not just a religious thing. It's actually yeah. a practice. It's one of the ways that we practice our relationship, I guess. That's yeah. what it feels like to me. And then, like you said, one of the, maybe one of the reasons why that is, is because it's an intentional way of living. Uh, and it's not just random and we're not just trying to figure out what to do now and what should our next sermon series be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's intentional. So that's part of why it's good. Why, why else is it helpful or beneficial? Yeah, I think um, it's also very beneficial because the church calendar is unifying uh, because the whole church actually does this together. And that is a, a testimony of our union in Christ. Like we're, we're not monads. We're not billions of individuals out here trying to forge our own path and, and figure everything out on our own. We're actually all on the same journey. And when we move together as one through the church year, it reminds us of that. And so the church calendar is something of a unifying force for the church. It speaks of our unity, and in some ways it enables our unity. Is it kind of like the world, I don't know what it's called, but the however the world uses its clocks, like we're all on a different hour, but it's all, I don't know when this, this modern clock system came into effect, but there was a time before we had time zones. I guess it's the time zones that organizes everything and it keeps the whole world unified to some degree other than Newfoundland. That's <laughs> half an hour off. But I guess just the idea that the whole world has agreed to it being this time, like right now it's the 57th minute everywhere right. of the hour. Other than Newfoundland. Other than Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone's, it's almost like it doesn't, 
the time it is is arbitrary, but as long as we're all together, it helps us work as a global community. And so I guess, is it, is it unifying for the church in that sense? That was a really long explanation or analogy, <laughs> but I'm trying to figure out how do we explain what it means to be unified in that way or how the church calendar unifies us? Yeah, I... I mean, my intuitions are that it, it's on a much deeper level than sure. than that. Um, yeah. I think that enables cooperation, uh, where the church calendar really has us moving in a direction together. And I guess I would say that the very pattern of living of of the Christian church testifies to the gospel. Hmm. Like, like we're living out the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so we're bearing witness to him through these peculiar actions. Right. So it's almost like the idea where God tells the people to set up stones in the wilderness so that the next generation will come and ask the parents, why are these stones set up? And then the parents get to tell the kids about what God has done in the community. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. But I guess it's it's more than you're saying it's more than just practical like the daylight savings or time zones is a practical thing and that's helpful right but it's deeper than that do you want to say more about that yeah i do i think uh that leads into sort of the last point that i wanted to make on this is that uh, the church calendar is actually participatory so biblical remembrance is more than just recollection and if I can detour for a minute here, there, there are a couple of things that Western culture believes about time that I think are relevant here. And first, that time is progress. So when we look at history, uh, we tend to view it through this lens of human progress. We are constantly developing, uh, improving, and we believe that progress is an integral part of who we are. And the second thing that we believe about time is that it is homogenous. It's, it's flat and it's cold. It is void of meaning. So uh, picture time as a long ribbon that is just laid out on a table. There's no qualitative difference between any two moments in time. There's no reason uh, that one moment should have any more value or significance than another. They're all basically the same. And the relationship between moments in time is strictly along this plane. It's strictly uh, chronological. The Bible says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. And so we might picture him, in a sense, running his hands along the table and gathering up the ribbon of time and holding it together at once. This this is one perspective of eternity. We, we, We might call that gathered time. And then you can imagine you know, the twists and the bends of the ribbon as he does that. And you can see how maybe it's possible for two moments in time to be closer together than they appear to be on the surface. And so relationships between time aren't just chronological. They're also typological. They are participatory. Uh, So I really like the image of the ribbon being gathered up and the, and time kind of in a sense, folding back on itself or, or maybe uh, like a, a spiral of time, even like it, you come back to the same point, but you're, it's deeper or yeah, I like, I really like that image. I think it's very helpful. Um, 
and even gathered time, the idea of the ribbon being gathered into Jesus's hand and he holds, he holds all of time. Right. And I want cause I want to, maybe I don't want to, but I just naturally as a Western person, like you're saying, I view time chronologically or maybe scientifically. Right. Like it's just, it's a movement of time and it's tick, a mathematical tick, formula. Tick. Yeah. <laughs> and it just one matter or one moment doesn't matter more than the next. I didn't think about that. That's how I view time until it's pointed out to me. Right. And I, it almost seems crazy that there would be another way to view time. I'm like, what do you mean? How can you view time differently? It's just as time. Yeah. But, but also we're so fascinated with time travel movies <laughs> and this idea of like, okay, if you did go back in time and how could you go back in time and how would that affect the future? But it seems like time, it seems like we know intuitively that time isn't just linear like we think of it. Right. Or like science has told us to think of it. And it seems like it's intuitive that some moments of time are more special or different or set apart than others or that they could be. Right. Um, like even we, even in our Western culture, we do talk about time and we talk about time in decades, which is silly because it's just our arbitrary selection of when that is. But the fifties have a different feel than the sixties and they have a different feel from the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. Like time does have, it's different. Right. Periods of time. And even we we talk about our world as like a post-9-11 world. And now we talk about post-COVID. Right. Like things things that happen in time are so, they affect things so much that they affect our relationship to the rest of time, I guess. So it does make sense because that's actually just how we live as humans. Um. So it kind of now seems foolish to actually just think of time as linear and like one moment is no more valuable than the next. But I'm wondering if you could explain maybe better the words typological and participatory. What, what does it mean? What is typology or how do we participate in this? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, typology is, the scriptures are full of types and anti-types. Um, so, I mean, Father Stephen was preaching this morning about uh, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea um, and how that is a type of baptism. Hmm. And so the two events inform one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea is the type and baptism is the anti-type. Mm -hmm. And so we, we understand more about uh, our baptism when we... Uh, look at the crossing of the Red Sea, and and we we try to study that story and understand more about it. Uh, and so, those two events are related to one another, uh, and perhaps we could say that um, the ribbon has folded back on itself hmm. in in those moments of time, so that there there's a deeper connection there than there appears to be on the surface. And um, I think. I think that's that's a true way to think about time, that events that are separated by thousands of years can actually be so close together that the line between them is almost blurred a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, even in the scope of eternity, you know, our Sunday Eucharist services are closer to the Last Supper 
uh, end to the marriage supper of the Lamb than they are to our Monday mornings. That's a mind-blowing thought. Right. (laughs) And on the few occasions that I think about that on a Sunday while I'm receiving the Eucharist, it's been very helpful because <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's an arresting thought. Like it stops me in my tracks that what's happening. Cause I'm going to be honest. When I first heard about like the idea of typology in the Bible, like saying that my baptism is somehow connected to the Israelites going through the red sea. Like that just yeah. seems absurd. Right. <laughs> we seem to have left the realm of, hypothetical science even and gone out to like stuff that's not possible. But I actually don't think that's true anymore. Like I think it is possible. And I think every Christian has to believe it's possible. If we believe that Jesus death actually has anything to do with our lives. Like if Jesus died on a cross 2000 years ago, unless time can somehow like be related to each other two different times, then his death can't be connected to me. It has nothing to do with me. But I do believe that. I mean, the whole Christian life is a life of participation in the life of Jesus. Right. Right. Union with Christ and, and participating in his death and resurrection. Yeah. And so, you know, to keep talking about baptism, we're not just um, drawing connections between you know, Christian baptism and the the crossing of the Red Sea. But primarily, actually, we would look typologically to... The other way. ...to Christ's baptism. Right. Um, and so the believer is baptized into Christ. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's... And the, the Israelites in the Red Sea were, in a sense, connected to Christ. Like, Jesus is the center of all of these time folds, if you will. Yes. Because Jesus is, like you said, the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is time. I don't know if I'd say I mean, it like he, that. He is the center and the foundation of the universe. Yeah. And I think, you know, the scriptures say there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our experience says we've, we've all been baptized. There's billions of independent baptisms. Uh, but I think in a very real and biblical sense, we are all participating in the baptism of Jesus. Right. And so there really is just one baptism, mm. uh, the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, mm-hmm. and we participate in that baptism. Right. So I think my, my point with this uh, is really to say that the church year acts to really connect us to the story of Jesus and to the overarching story of the people of God. It's not just vain repetition every year. We actually live it. It's, it's our story. We participate in the journey of Christ, which is the journey of the people of God. And so, you know, to, to, to remember what we were saying about the Western view of time, uh, in contrast to this view of time as progress, the church calendar pulls us out of that. It pulls us out of the march of progress and keeps us rooted in the life of Jesus. And rather than a homogenous view of time, the church calendar is constantly pointing us to and connecting us to the most important events in history. So Holy Week is so significant that we actually slow right down and live it moment by moment as if it is currently taking place. Everything in history folds back in on Holy Week. Every moment finds its truest meaning and truest value in reference to 
the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the church calendar is participatory. It connects us to the story of Jesus and helps us to live it out. I think that's really helpful. I mean, we sing a song that says, I think it's called the center of all history. And it's about Jesus being the center of all history. Right. Um, But this just makes a lot of sense, not only of what that means, but of why it's meaningful to us. Like, I guess, who cares if Jesus is the center of all history? What's that got to do with me? Well, (laughs) the church calendar is like the, it's just the way we practice walking with Jesus and shaping our personal histories around him as the center, both like, I guess it's the way of, of literally making Jesus your beginning and end or making him the center of your life Hmm. is he by following the church calendar, you're letting Jesus's life guide your life, literally your time and shape it. And yeah, just, it's a way of walking with Jesus day by day in every season, which is again, lyrics from a worship song (laughs) that is nice to sing, but it's like, here's how we do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. So just to kind of summarize what we talked about today, Uh, The church calendar provides a pattern of living that is structured around the key events in salvation history. And so we talked about what those seasons are, you know, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Ordinary Time. And and then we gave four reasons why following the church calendar uh, is beneficial for us. And this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but I think it's a good start. Uh, And that is that the church calendar is biblical. uh, It is intentional. It is unifying, and it is participatory. So thanks, Jordan, for uh, chatting with me today. You're welcome. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you have any questions uh, or comments for us, please uh, drop us an email, missionarydistrict at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. And uh, we'll see you again next time.